You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all of your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. And as many of you know by now, we are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Professor Ed Larson. He is our first, but hopefully not last, our first Pulitzer Prize winner as a guest on the podcast. Uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for History for a book he wrote on the Scopes Monkey Trial, which I confess I was completely ignorant about, or mostly ignorant about, until about three hours ago when I decided to read up about it. It's a terrific book. It's a wonderful story. We're going to get into that. He's also written books on George Washington. He wrote a book on the election of 1800 called A Magnificent Catastrophe, which I can tell you the book is neither. It is, it is both magnificent and not a catastrophe. It is terrific. I recently just finished his book, Franklin and Washington, about our two most important founding fathers. Ed holds the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law and is University Professor of History at Pepperdine University. He received his PhD from the University of Wisconsin in 1984, go Badgers, and his law degree from Harvard University in 1979. He represents our third Harvard-educated lawyer on the podcast, along with Ted Bohm and David Frick. He received the 1998 Pulitzer Prize for History for his book, Summer for the Gods, The Scopes, Scopes Trial and America's Continuing Debate over Science and Religion. There's a couple of other interesting little facts we're going to ask him about, but we're going to talk about his writing and his career. Professor Larson, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, that's a lengthy introduction because your <laughs> career is so absolutely amazing. I, I knew that you were a published author and an award-winning author, a best-selling author, but the more I read about you, the more I was like, I'm really going to enjoy this podcast, <laughs> and we appreciate your time. You're very kind. Uh, first, I would ask you quickly... When did you fall in love with history and why the change from law to history as a profession? I honestly don't remember when I didn't love history. Uh, I, as a kid, I loved history, uh, history and geography. Um, I suppose it's coming from the Midwest like you. We have a lot of geography out there in the Midwest and uh, we have a lot of history and I just, always found it fascinating. And it was always my, honestly, it was always my goal to be a history professor or be a professor. Um, and, you know, I originally thought I'd want to be in a 
a, a small college in a in the Midwest, and of course we have many of them. Uh, I ended up going traveling around, being other places, spending 20 years teaching at the University of Georgia uh, in the South in a, a small, a large college in a small college town. Um, as for um, the connection with law, I started to get after college. I started to get my PhD in history. And right then it was a incredibly, at University of Wisconsin, it was an incredibly tough time uh, to get jobs. Uh, people were very depressed about the, the academic market. And since what I was doing overlapped a lot with law, I was doing interaction with legal history. And if you look at my books, almost all of them have a tie with either constitutional history or legal history. And so one of the members of my committee happened to be a professor at uh, the law school at University of uh, Wisconsin. And he suggested, and he was a legal historian, and he suggested that, you know, I get a law degree too. And if I had both of them, I would both on one hand have job security, but also if you can do both, you're more likely to not only find a job if you have a backup as, as law, but also you can be more likely to be hired because law schools hire legal historians, but they really like the joint degree because if you get a PhD, you can also, it pushes you ahead toward publication and law schools like you have several excellent law schools right there in Indiana. You have one in Bloomington and you have another one in Indianapolis and you have another one in up near South Bend. Uh, and uh, they all like to hire people who have PhDs, so I, I, as well as law degrees. So I ended up getting my law degree in the middle of getting my PhD. And so I got my law degree, went back, did practice some law to sort of nail down the skills, um, had a, enjoyed that, but finished up the PhD and then taught. So to me, they go together. Did you just get tired of being poor? Oh, That's a lot I, of school with not a lot of money. Well, um, you, um, yeah, and I took a lot of pay cuts. I made a lot more practicing <laughs> law than teaching. Um, but, you know, I, I, when you, if you ask me when, as, when I was a kid, and I don't want to, you know, I'm a typical Midwesterner, and you, you um, asked me my goal in life, it really was never, per se, to make money. It was to not to be bored and have an interesting life. And uh, that I've had. So I've been able to write, I've been able to publish, I've been able to teach. I love teaching students. Um, and I still, you know, can consult and, and practice some on, on the side. So it's a, to me, it's a wonderful life. And, you know, we only go around once. We might as well do interesting things. I've been able to go great places and write on interesting subjects. And while practicing law was wonderful and I enjoyed it, for me, you know, you've got to follow your dream. And this was mine. You were born, I, if memory serves, early 50s, 53? Correct. Is that right? Or 50? Good memory. So you were born and, and came of age in some incredibly interesting times historically. What are some of the memories? Do you have a first like event you remember? For me, born in 67, I can barely remember, I think, Nixon's win over McGovern in 72. But I can definitely remember Watergate summer, summer of 73. What are some of the early historical events that you remember and, and how they shaped your love of history? Well, of course, anybody my age 
no matter how young, can remember uh, Kennedy's assassination. Um, I vaguely remember meeting both Kennedy and Nixon when they visited my hometown campaigning in 1960. Uh, uh, and I have things they both signed, so I must have been there. I vaguely remember that. But I remember the assassinations. I remember uh, uh, Kennedy, John Kennedy's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination, Martin Luther King's assassination. And they were all profoundly, you know, they impacted me. It's things you never forget. I remember the moon landing uh, by a fellow Buckeye, uh, Neil Armstrong. I actually remember uh, John Glenn. I remember us all watching John Glenn go around the um, uh, the first American to orbit the Earth, and then years later, um, sitting in the president's box at Ohio State with John Glenn. He became mm. certainly one of my great heroes. I, I, there's no one, probably no one I've met. I mean, there's no one he could admire more than John Glenn. Uh, what an American hero! Uh, so I those were those were all early things that I remember that. Uh, impacted me greatly and shaped me. Um, I do also, like you, remember the Watergate summer. And uh, that did too. That made me more interested in, in constitutional law. But, you know, these are shaping events in American history. And um, I don't remember President Eisenhower, but I admire him greatly. He may be the greatest president of my lifetime. And uh, even though I don't remember remember it consciously. I look back sure. as a historian and, and admire him greatly. So yeah, we've lived in uh, meaningful times. I remember the 1968 Democratic Convention and be absolutely shocked with what was going on and inside and outside the hall. Uh, they helped uh, uh, make drive my interest in uh, American politics as well as American constitutional law and constitutional history. We've actually had a couple of uh, podcast guests here, um, a man named Jim Voiles and a man named Ed Tracy, who were at the convention. We're coming down, coming down the elevator at the hotel, walking towards Grant Park when all hell broke loose and then quickly turned on their heels and <laughs> went back to the hotel. Did, did your love of history shape how you decided to not necessarily, not, not vote politically, because that's none of my business, but a political interest. I don't know many people who are interested in history who aren't also interested in politics and vice versa. They seem to go hand in hand. Is that true with you or are you a little different? Well, I am interested in politics, given, um, and I do write on it in a way, because certainly Magnificent Catastrophe is all about the election of 1800. And I was interested in that because I'm interested in in campaigns and politics. And that was the first uh, actual campaign for president. There was a, you know, an election four years before, but there wasn't really a campaign. So I was interested in how campaigns started, um, you know, like a, like a good Midwesterner. I'm a classic, uh, classic moderate in politics and try to, balance the two sides but i think that's what midwesterners do and uh the um and certainly the midwest has produced uh some tremendous uh political leaders and politicians uh, ohio of course claims to be the the uh the state with the most presidents but that's doing uh, some <laughs> it counts william henry harrison on one end because he came to the state and ulysses s grant on the other end because he was born there 
and that helps boost your numbers if you count them on either end. I think they count them if they just pass through. Indiana, I think you, I know you have Harrison. Um, is there any other one that Indiana counts besides Harrison? Well, weren't both Harrisons, William Henry and Benjamin, weren't they born? Well, William Henry Harrison was, he may be born in Virginia, but Benjamin Harrison was born in Ohio. Is that right? Benjamin Harrison was, yeah, but then he, he was served as governor from Indiana. Well, William Henry Harrison was territorial governor of Indiana for well, sure, but Benjamin Harrison's who we quote unquote claim, but right. we also Hoosiers try to convince ourselves that Lincoln's years in Indiana were this amazing See, formative experience. And I always kind of just roll my eyes. As there best you I go. Can. There you go. That's what Ohio does. Virginia does that too. It had Woodrow. I don't know why you want to claim Woodrow Wilson, but they had him early. So they count him as one of theirs. Well, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Neil Armstrong and Ohio and all of the listeners of the leaders or legends podcast who root for Purdue or have Purdue gr- degrees probably had an aneurysm when you didn't uh, mention Neil Armstrong and his Purdue connection, which uh, as an aside, anyone listening to the podcast who wants to read a fabulous book on the early years of the space program or the early years of the Apollo program and how it relates to uh, president uh, Kennedy's um, leadership, read the book American moonshot by Douglas Brinkley. It is fabulous. It is great. It is good. And I bought a no one in my respect for Purdue. You, everyone in Indiana should be, extremely proud of Purdue. It is truly one of the great engineering schools of the country. I lived for and taught for 20 years in in Georgia. And Georgia is the same way with Georgia Tech. To think that both of those states, which aren't really rich states, can produce an engineering school of the caliber of Georgia Tech and Purdue. Purdue may be the biggest engineering school in the world. It's certainly the best big one. And anywhere you go in the world, Boilermakers are there, and they do a great job of finding jobs for their alum. It's it's a true network. Well, we've had the president of Purdue University, Mitch Daniels, former governor, on the podcast, and he was terrific. And I guess I should say I dropped my son off at Purdue for his sophomore year just a few days ago. And you know, the best thing, being a Wisconsin grad, the best thing about Purdue is they don't try to play football. So <laughs> they can be a great school, and yet we can still beat them every year. <laughs> Dina Potter, who's one of the uh, my best friends, is listening to this podcast. Purdue. I didn't say that, Dina. It was a professor who said that. The first book I read of yours is Magnificent Catastrophe, and it's about the election of 1800, the first real election, if that's the right way to put it. Uh, and it ended up coming down to it was John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson. Adams was the second president. Thomas Jefferson was his vice president. Parties, as we know it, didn't exist then. The Constitution was oddly worded when it came to how presidents and vice presidents were selected through the Electoral College. What made you decide to write this book? It seems very prescient, especially what we're going through today, as was the book by uh, Mr. or Dr. and Dr. Mr. and Mrs. Heidler about the election of 18. 18- 28 and Andrew Jackson. Why did you choose this particular election for that book? Elections are fascinating by their nature, and there are certain really divisive and decisive elections in American history. And uh, 
1828, as you mentioned, is one of them. Um, 1896 is another. 1860, of course, Lincoln's election. Uh, but nothing is nothing was more important than 1800. The elections before that, as you say, they weren't really elections in the way that we think about them. Certainly, uh, 1796 was close, uh, but it was under the old style. And the old style was, you know, electors come from somewhere. They might be appointed by um, states or they might be elected uh, by the people, but people weren't really running as a member of a party. And so Adams came in first and Jefferson came in second. And so they became president and vice president because that's the way it was. Now, what had happened, though, and there were some wonderful books. Noel Cunningham um, would be one example of, a, a, of such a book. There were some wonderful books about the rise of partisanship in America. And sometimes those books, which happened, party, Washington, Franklin, all the, the founders, the framers of the Constitution, the ratifiers, had no concept of political parties. There were a few states had distinct parties. Pennsylvania did, New York did at the time of the Constitutional Convention, but there were no national parties and there was no sense that there would be national parties. People just didn't think that way. And so what they thought, what Washington thought, what the framers thought, what the ratifiers thought was that, um, there wouldn't be anything that would cross state lines. So, you know, every people would vote for who they thought the states would choose electors in some way, either vote for them or have the legislature pick them and states split about 50 50, which way they did it. And then they would meet, those electors would meet and choose who they thought was the most qualified person to be president. And as long as they got a majority of the elector, electoral votes, they'd become president and the person who came in second would become vice president because they didn't think you could have parties as a vetting machine. But what had happened during the 1780s and the 1790s, after Washington left office, there was a there was a just an organic development in America of national political parties. They built on the state parties that already pre-existed in New York and Pennsylvania, but it spread to other states. And so um, by 1800, actually by the midterm elections, by 1898, 1798, excuse me, there were two distinct and clear political parties. One basically around Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, the Federalist Party, and one basically around Thomas Jefferson, the which had been the Anti-Federalist Party, didn't really have a clear name. The Jefferson called it Jefferson's People, uh, organized primarily by his main partisan advocate, uh, James Madison, called it the Republican Party. Their opponents called it by what they thought was a derogatory name, the Democratic Party. And so people used both. Some people still called it the Anti-Federalist Party. And it, they divided on uh, some key issues um, that, that, that spread. And one was states' rights. The Jeffersonian Party was very much for states' rights. And Hamilton's party was very much for a strong national government. Opposition to, to the um, so-called quasi-war with France um, that had developed in response to the war, but the worldwide war then going on between Republican France and 
after the revolution and, and monarchical England on the other side that drew America in because then our major trading partner, where we sold our, we were an agricultural country and where we sold our agricultural goods was the Caribbean. And France had half of the, a part of the islands and England and the Netherlands had the other part and they were all torn and they were limiting our trade. Uh, there was an instinctive support for part of America for the Republic in France that we had been allied to in the Revolutionary War. There was also an instinctive part of our country for our old mother country, England. So America split over that, split over the Alien and Sedition Acts, it split over immigration um, with the Jeffersonians supporting immigration and the Federalists opposing it. It split over taxes because the Federalists were raising taxes sky high to pay for the, their quasi-war with France and, and low taxes supported by Jefferson. So there were certain issues pulling the country apart. And there's some, some great books. But where all those books end um, is the election of 1800. And they sometimes put the election of 1800 in the title, but they don't talk about the election like a person, a political junkie would. They barely mention, and it all they all say in the last chapter, it all played out in the election of 1800 <laughs> and Jefferson barely won. So what I thought I'd do was study that election. How did it all play out? No one discusses how it played out in a nuts and bolts way. So what I decided to do was use Teddy White's uh, book, the making of a president 1960 as a model and basically just follow that election month by month just the election and then talk back to if you needed to go back to earlier things to understand this development or that development it would have flashbacks into the 1790s, the developments of the political parties, but you'd be focused on those 12 months of the election. And um, that's so that's what I did. I got the idea because what I did with my Scopes trial book was the same way. I took day by I walked through the election. I walked through this one event and use that that is the trial and then use that one event to go backward and forward to tell what it meant for American history. And so I use that model for the magnificent catastrophe, just following the blow by blows of the election. And no one had ever done that. So I followed the pamphlet wars and I followed the speeches and I followed the political campaigning and I followed each election. Back then, Amer the states didn't all vote at the same time. It was mm -hmm. before the statute in the 1840s requiring that all states had their elections at the same time. And so you had the election spread over really a calendar year. And it was sort of like when we follow the primaries in that sense that the newspapers all over the country would report the results in each state. And you could see the electoral vote building up backward and forward, back and forward, on and on, just like you watch the primary results, the the number of delegates that each candidate have build back and forth. And so you could watch Jefferson pull ahead and then Adams pull ahead. And so that's what I do in the in the book. And uh, in that way, I'm able to follow the uh, blow by blow of the election. And that's what made the book fun for me and what's make it a, uh, a read. It turns out that people of both parties like it. Um, Carl Rove, uh, uh, later wrote an article for the 
Wall Street Journal every Friday, they list the best books in a field. And um, Carl Rove listed as the second best book ever written about a, uh, an election, second only to Making of a President 1960, which has been <laughs> my model. So I, I couldn't complain about that. And George Bush uh, was reading it while he was in the White House, and he invited me to the White House to talk about the book, which was fun as well. But yet Democrats, too. I got notes from Walter Mondale, and I got notes from um, various Democratic political leaders, Carville and others. So it, it doesn't have an appeal for one party versus the other. It seems to have a cross appeal among anybody who likes elections. Adams and Jefferson, bitter rivals, famously reconciled, and perhaps even more famously, died on the exact same day, July 4th, 1826, the anniversary, 50th anniversary of the adoption, signing of the Declaration of Independence. How did they become such bitter enemies? And how did they, in your view, what brought them back together as sorts of lions in winter? Well, they started out as friends. Right. Of course, they were both on the committee that wrote the Declaration of Independence. They both served in Europe together as diplomats during the uh, um, American Revolution. They were both early advocates of independence back before independence was a foregone conclusion in the Second Continental Congress. They'd both gone to the Second Continental Congress, the delegates from their state. They were both smart. They were both um, um, articulate. They were both great writers. And so they were friends. They were friends in Europe. They got along together quite well. They then both served in the Washington administration in a sense, and that John, John Adams was the vice president, if that made him part of the administration, and Jefferson was the secretary of state. But they divided over um, various issues of policy because Adams was, while not a high federalist like Hamilton, he still was a federalist, and Jefferson was, well, an advocate of states' rights and limited federal government. And he was a friend of France, and Adams was more a friend of, it's hard to say he's a friend of England, that's tough, because <laughs> he, he too hated England, but he certainly wasn't a friend of France. Um, they had similar religious views. Um, so in many ways, they were both well-educated, they both had gone to college. Um, so they divided over politics, and um, they divided over the, um, when Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Acts, and joined the quasi-war with France, that was just too much for Jefferson. You want to and explain quickly what the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts The Alien and Sedition are. Acts, um, the alien, they were, they were partisan acts adopted during the uh, Adams administration, and the Sedition Acts made it uh, illegal for anyone, any, any, uh, anyone, I guess it would be, to criticize the government or the president. And uh, this was a wartime measure. Um, you'd think they were clearly unconstitutional, but of course, back then the Supreme Court didn't yet have the power. It was before Mar uh, uh, John Marshall was, was justice and they didn't have the power to review legislation. And so they didn't review legislation and several states like Virginia and Kentucky declared them unconstitutional, but that didn't have much effect. And um, 
So you couldn't criticize the government. Um, and the Alien Acts basically revoked citizenship for some people who, based on their position on the quasi-war with France and uh, limited citizenship and, and um, based not based on sheer numbers, but based on uh, political issues and partisan issues. And then the quasi-war with France was that we had a, a, a declared naval war against France to defend American shipping. But why not England, too? Because England, mm. they were both attacking shipping on the American shipping on the high seas. Uh, so those helped, helped really turn Jefferson uh, manifestly against Adams. And Ad Adams, they both, this was true to both extent, but Adams especially was very thin-skinned and could not tolerate criticism and so the result was they'd split they'd run against each other the, the first time 1796 they sort of ran against each other in the sense they were both candidates but they that they survived that but they had split um adams's people attacked jefferson at every level jefferson thought unfairly and jefferson's people attacked adams unfairly at every level, and that just drove them apart. Now, what brought them back together was in part Abigail. Abigail always got along pretty well with Jefferson. Everybody got along with Abigail. Uh, Abigail Adams, the, the wife of the wife John of Adams. Jeff yeah, right. And uh, the wife of John Adams. Um, and it was her and Benjamin Rush, who was a uh, mm -hmm. political leader that crossed party lines. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was a Philadelphia uh, physician, and he managed to get along with, with people in both parties miraculously. And he helped bring them. He says, you guys really should be friends. And so um, when you couple that with also, John Adams was very ambitious for his son, John Quincy. Right. He really wanted John Quincy to be president. Now, John Quincy, by this time, had been a senator for the Federalist Party, but he was sort of like a John Kasich. He was really, a, even though John Kasich had been a Republican governor, he was sort of above partisanship to, to an extent. And John Quincy was the same way. And after John, Jefferson turned out to be a dang successful president who reached across party lines. When he became president, he didn't push partisanship. He was elected in a partisan election. But the first thing he did in his inaugural address, he said, we're all Republicans. We're all Federalists. We're all one party. And he did a, made an amazing effort to draw the country together. He didn't govern in a partisan manner. And then he bought the Louisiana Purchase, which the Federalists love, and he, he fought the Barbary Pirates and defended U.S. shipping on the high seas, which the Federalists love, and he kept many Federalists in, in office. And he ended up building a part, he ended up winning overwhelmingly in his next election. And it became clear that the that there was going to be an era of good feelings. These parties were going to get together. And Adams saw that the future for his son lie in this united parties. And so by reaching out to Jefferson, he was in a way helping to support the movement of his son, who then served as Secretary of State in one of the Virginia dynasties of presidents. Uh, uh, James Monroe became president of the United States following Jefferson. And he made, John, as part of this, 
unity government. He made John Quincy Adams uh, his secretary of state. And then John Quincy Adams used that as a stepping stone to being president. If you think back, Jefferson had been secretary of state. So had Madison, so had Monroe, that it was viewed as a general stepping stone uh, to the presidency. So Adams clearly, by reuniting with Jefferson, was helping his own son uh, become part of this larger uh, Jeffersonian or Republican Democratic Party. And we should note that John Quincy Adams was elected president in 1824 and John Adams died in 1826. So he did live to see his son become president. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Professor Ed Larson, recipient of the Pulitzer Prize in History for his book on the Scopes Trial. We've just got finished talking about his book, A Magnificent Catastrophe. It's about the election of 1800. If you want to understand modern politics and modern political parties, pick up this book because the foundation of much of what we experience today is in that election. One more question or two on that book before we move on. If memory serves... Jefferson did not win the election outright, but yet tied with uh, a rather notorious young fella named Aaron Burr. It goes into the House, and Jefferson is selected, and Burr becomes his vice president, if I recall. How did Jefferson win that election in the Federal House of Representatives And what role, if any, did Alexander Hamilton play in securing his old rival to be president of the United States? Well, that's a wonderful question and a fluke of of, that no longer can happen of early American politics. Uh, Before getting to it, let me just say one thing. You mentioned before the break how John Adams was able to live long enough to see his son become president, which was wonderful. John Adams was lucid to the very last day of his life, and he it meant so much to him. It was really a wonderful thing that his son could um, could be elected. It was sort of like the second term he never had. But it was also wonderful for Jefferson because Jefferson was delighted that John Quincy Adams, it made him very happy that his friend, son, became president. Um, But what was also nice, I'll just close with this, is it was also timely when Adams died. Um, Adams lived longer than any president until, um, I think any president until Reagan. Reagan. But he died before John Quincy lost for re-election. And that would have crushed him. So in some ways, because he would have taken it so personally, and it was such a a, a vicious election, the attacks by uh, Jackson against John Quincy were almost unconscionable. And um, so um, it it was a timely time for John Adams. Prostitutes for the czar of Russia when John Quincy Adams was minister. Yeah. And, you know, everyone serves two terms, presidents one through seven. 
they all win two terms. The exception to that is John Adams and John Quincy Adams. And I can understand how Jefferson would be thrilled that John Quincy Adams won in 1824, despite the so-called corrupt bargain, because Jefferson thought that Andrew Jackson was a wild man. <laughs> he did. He did. He didn't like Jackson at all. Um, but as for the the tie, the so-called tie, you talk about it, it was just a fluke. Um, it was a fluke of the fact that they didn't think there were going to be parties, as we talked about sooner. And so they thought all the electors were going to vote for whoever they thought was the best person to be president and therefore who came in first, as long as they got a majority. Uh, uh, first would be president, whoever came in second would be vice president. That made perfect sense. Well, then when we had flipped during Adam's first administration, this hyper-partisanship call, and we flipped into a two-party system, well, every elector under the Constitution originally, as originally drafted, got two votes because you were voting for president and vice president. So you're going to vote for two votes. But when you're casting them, whoever you think's the best person, and you can't vote for both of them for the same person, and you can't vote for two pe people from your own state. And, but the result was when we flipped to partisan voting, well, the members of the party are both gonna vote for the candidate, cast their vote for the candidate for president and vice president. The result is it's gonna be a tie. It's just a fluke from the way it's drafted, unless you coordinate and get one of them not to vote. Now, every, every Federalist elector uh, was voted for John Adams for president, and all but one voted for the Federalist candidate for vice president, Charles Coatsworthy Pinckney. With the with the Feder with the Jeffersonian Party, with the so-called Republican Party, the so-called Republican De uh, Democratic Party, whatever you want to call it, um, they were all voting. They all meant that Jefferson should be president. None of them meant that Burr was president. But they had to cast another vote, and they didn't. They when you were when they were voting because of the, how long it takes for communication there they didn't know who'd won the election. Adams thought he'd won the election because he thought he had gotten the votes from South Carolina. He didn't. They ended up voting for Jefferson and Burr. But he thought they had them and it, the votes hadn't come in yet. So when the electors were voting, they knew it was going to be incredibly close. The previous election had been decided by three electoral votes. And Adams only won by three electoral votes in the whole, in the whole country. And... Um, which was less than one state. So Adams thought he'd won. Jefferson thought he'd won. They didn't want any, if they had, if they'd ended up really close, there was a fear that if they didn't all vote for their vice presidential candidate, that Adams would come in second for vice president and Jefferson would have had Adams as his vice president. And Adams remembers how horrible it was to have Jefferson as vice president because you've got a <laughs> vice president trying to undercut you at every turn. So all the Jeffersonian electors voted for their vice presidential candidate, who was Aaron Burr. They had chosen Aaron Burr to balance the ticket because Aaron Burr was an incredible, even if he was a scoundrel, he was an incredible politician and he could deliver the votes of New York State for the right. ticket. And the result was Jefferson and Aaron Burr tied. And under the original, now that was changed by the time we had the next election and electors after that, 
immediately changed. And after that, the electors cast two votes, but one listed for president and one for vice president. But the result is they were tied. And so it goes to the House of Representatives. But back then, it was the old House of Representatives that got to decide. And the old, the new House of Representatives, you know, Jefferson made a sweep. They took the Senate, took the House, his party took everything. But the old House was split. And the old House, um, what you did is back then, if you have a tie for president, um, every state vote gets one vote. And um, what they do is all the members of the House, it's decided by the House of Representatives with each state getting one vote. And back then there was something like 15 states, I guess, by that time. And each got one vote. But if you had an equal number and that was decided by the members of the House from that state. Well, that's easy if you're like um, Delaware and have one elector, one member of the House, whoever mm. that however that guy. In that case, it was Baynard was his name. However, he voted that so goes the state. Other states have maybe 13, like Virginia. Well, as long as you have a majority of one party, well, that's pretty easy. But you had a bunch of states that had a, an, an even number of members of the uh, uh, Congress. Vermont had two, for example. And one was a Jeffersonian and one was a Federalist. And so if all the Federalists in Congress voted, they couldn't vote for uh, Adams because he wasn't in the tie. Um, the tie was between Burr, his vice president, and Jefferson. Well, if all the Republicans voted for Jefferson and all the Federalists voted for Burr, who was much closer ideologically, he might have been a scoundrel, but he was much closer ideologically to the Federalists. Um, if they all voted that way, well, nobody would get a majority of the states because uh, there were something like three states that were split 50-50, and therefore they couldn't vote. So you would never get to that nine, the number you needed. And that's what happened. It goes to the House of Representatives and every all the Federalists vote for Burr and all the, because they hate Jefferson and the Republicans, and all the um, Jeffersonians all the vote for Jefferson. And uh, the three states split 50-50 and couldn't vote. And the result is... It took um, 35 ballots. It took day after mm. day after day of voting. It was nobody could get a majority, even though all the every in states where they voted for electors, all the people were voting for Jefferson in states where the co legislature picked the um, the electors. Well, nobody was voting for Burr. Nobody wanted Burr to be president. He was a scoundrel. But it was a way to, it was so partisan. And what finally happens is Hamilton, who ideologically hates Jefferson, but has known him and knows he's an honorable person, but also knew Burr. They both were New York lawyers. They had tried cases together. And he knew Burr was an absolute scoundrel who cared about nothing but power. And Hamilton had one, was one of the co-authors of the Constitution, and he knew that the Constitution only works. This is true to today. The Constitution only works so long as the people and the leaders have virtue. And he knew Jefferson had virtue. He didn't agree with him ideologically. And he knew 
Burr had no virtue whatsoever and would become a try to become a tyrant or a dictator. And so he pleaded with members of his party as the founder of the Federalist Party. He pleaded with them, you've got to vote for Jefferson. I hate the man. There's nobody in the country I disagree with more. But he's the people he's the one that people wanted and he will be at least an honorable leader. And so he worked hard to get the Federalists finally to break ranks, which finally the the one representative from Delaware breaks rank after 38 ballots. And after it's clear that no Jeffersonian will ever break ranks and vote for Burr, no matter how much how much you offer them, how many bribes, how many promises you offer them, they'll never break ranks and vote for Burr. And that was literally the end of Burr. And of course, that difference led indirectly, but as a just bang, 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 it led to continued divisions between Burr and Hamilton, which played out ultimately in a duel that cost Hamilton his life. The election of 1800 was contentious. We've had a lot of contentious elections since then. How long, very quickly, how long did that election of 1800 and, and its, its fever pitch, how long did that stay in the consciousness of Americans? Well, I don't think Americans ever forgot the election of 1800, and it was an object lesson of how dirty and bad things could get. But Jefferson immediately set about to try to correct it. And he deserves a lot of credit. I think Jefferson's uh, first term was one of the great presidential terms of all time, maybe the greatest. He brought the country together by from the very outset, trying to have a unified government to reach out to the other side and um, not govern as the partisan ideologue that the Federalists thought he would be. And that eventually brings even John Adams, as you've noted, and John Quincy Adams back on board. And uh, that's the thing that helps get over that election. But the memory of that election, of, of, of how bitter and divisive it could be, and how close we came, and I work about how close we came to civil war. States had raised their militias during that battle there was a real danger, a very real danger that the country, that the Constitution would not survive that election. And Jefferson deserves a lot of credit, but as does Hamilton in a way, uh, for bringing the country uh, uh, back together again. And um, in those early days, you know, we didn't know if we were going to, if this, if this ex noble experiment in Republican rule was going to work because there were no other real, there were no other continental republics in the world right then. And yet we managed to survive that. We managed to survive the big divisions of, of 1824 and 28, which are marked by, uh, uh, by Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams. And by 1860, which leads to a civil war, the country had lasted long enough to even survive a civil war. Because a lot of, especially people in Great Britain, were convinced that we weren't going to last. Like it's especially the War of eighteen twelve, and that's not the subject of the podcast today. But there were certainly uh, significant divisions among Americans 
uh, in between uh, Canada and the United States. And there was a significant group of people, especially British, who were just like, we're just going to wait this republic out. It's not going to last. So we don't need to do anything now because once it breaks apart, then we can cherry pick and create alliances with New England, per se, and, and other interested parties. It's interesting. You, you would assume, we assume looking back because we've survived 200 plus years, that it was a foregone conclusion that we were going to survive any real reading of the time period before the era of good feeling, which is roughly 1816-ish, uh, a little before and a little after, that we certainly could have come apart. We almost did come apart. And all the history that we take for granted since then would have been completely different. We are talking with Professor Ed Larson, a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. We were talking about the election of 1800 in his book, Magnificent Catastrophe, the tumultuous election of 1800, America's first presidential campaign. One of the reasons that 1800 sticks out is because in 1788 and in 1792, a man was elected president unanimously. And that man is George Washington. Professor Larson wrote a book in 2015 called The Return of George Washington, Uniting the States, 1783 to 1789. He also wrote a book called Franklin in Washington, which I finished just a few months ago. It is terrific. It's about time someone paired these two, the two, in, in my view, the Batman and Robin, for lack of a better term, of the American Revolution. We could not have succeeded without Franklin's efforts in Europe. We could not have succeeded and won the war without Washington's efforts here on the continent. Our founding fathers are under a bit of uh, fire these days. And without getting into the politics of it, let me ask kind of a counterintuitive question. Is it possible that George Washington is underrated? Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, but um, I think, no, I think he, people do recognize um, he was central. Along with Franklin, they, I agree with you, they were the two indispensable Americans. Without the two of them, the revolution wouldn't work. Certainly there were other important people, Jefferson, Adams, um, Nathaniel Green, even on the military front. Mm, yeah. uh, these were very important people, um, but they were all, as they say in law, fungible, that you could have probably found a replacement for them who could have filled that role. Nobody could have replaced it, Washington or Franklin. Um, and uh, I think in general, uh, they get their due. They get criticized, um, both of them. There is, I mean, nobody's perfect. That's the problem with putting anybody up on it, anybody up on a statue, because as we we all know from um, I don't know from the Bible or from uh, we're all sinners, and uh, everybody has their faults, and if you focus on those faults, you um, it's when you put people up on a pedestal. You are you are um, you're not taking into account those those faults. And that's why I love museums and I love books and I love places like Mount Jefferson, uh, like Washington's Mount Vernon, because when you're in a book or when you're in a when you're in a museum or when you're at Washington's Mount Vernon, they can, can contextualize and you can see the whole person. And if we see the whole person as opposed to a, 
a, a glorified um, idealized image of the person, we can't relate to them. But, you know, the wonderful thing about Washington and, and, and Franklin, even though I consider them truly great people, once you get to know them, you can understand that they're people. And that's what I like about them. We can actually learn from them. We can, just like they emulated other people, we can emulate the good things in them and learn from the bad things in them. And that's what I like about um, having people like Washington. So I, I don't, I think he's fully appreciated, but if you want to dwell on, on uh, anybody's flaws, um, you know, you can learn from those flaws as well too. But I think it's best to see the whole person. And um, that's why I like to writing about both of these. And what you can follow is on the issue you mentioned. Washington realized, and so did Franklin, but Washington particularly realized at the time of the Constitution, both were heavily involved, heavily invested in the Constitution. They realized just what you were worried. They were very much afraid that everything they fought for was going to be lost because the America was going to split apart. The South was going to go off into one country. Vermont, at the time of the Constitution, Vermont was already actively negotiating with Canada to become part of Canada. New England was likely to go off another way. The whole thing was going to fall apart without a stronger union. And that's why the book about uh, uh, uniting the states is uh, that's the subtitle of the one book, but you can see that with Franklin as well. And what they wanted to, they gave America a new lease on life by uniting the states in a more fundamental way. The election of 1800, the way Jefferson responds to that is another one. The success of the survival of the War of 1812. Eight, War of 1812 was a was a mistake. But the, the fact that we survived it, and Andrew Jackson deserves some of the credit for that because of the Battle of New Orleans, the fact that we survived it, and then uh, those were all steps to make a viable country, pull parts, pull of a country that was going to pull apart into a bunch of pieces. And it wasn't just those parts, right where you are, Indiana, Indiana and Ohio, the Ohio country, the Ohio Valley, before the Constitutional Convention, that was going to pull off and either become part of Canada or part of Spain. There was no way it could have survived without the sort of government that could have a military that was capable of defending those territories. I meant to mention this earlier. I always find it somewhat ironic that Jefferson fought so damn hard to be president of the United States, but on his tomb, he lists many of his accomplishments. The Being president of the United States is not listed. I just don't, I mean, that's either the greatest uh, bit of humility in American history, or he was just, he ran out of space, or he just didn't find it that important, but he sure did fight like crazy to win it. One of the it, things that came through, go ahead, real quick, go I, ahead. I, I think that's interesting, and I think it's a little bit, um, uh, it may be humility, as you say. It may be false humility. It might be sort of tweaking history. The fact is, you got to remember, everyone reading that tombstone would know he was president. So he didn't need to repeat it. And when you're at that level, I think he knew they'd know that. The other three things, like founding the University of Virginia, they might not know. So 
it, you know, I think it's a very clever thing to do. And it, he was a witty and very smart guy. I think he knew exactly what he was doing and he knew nobody'd forget he was president. Well, that's, that's a great point. Or as Rochefoucauld said that humility is the worst form of conceit. So we'll have to, <laughs> we'll just have to guess your book on Washington and Franklin, which I implore people who love history, especially uh, the revolutionary period to pick up this book. One of the things that comes through in every book about George Washington is how reserved he was, kind of aloof. He had a bad temper. Um, he certainly was reserved. But he treats Franklin with almost, I don't want to say father-son deference, but he clearly holds Franklin in amazingly high regard and just kind of defers to him and caters to him. And it's an interesting part of Washington that I never really got to read about until your book. Am I overstating it? Or was Franklin just kind of to Washington who, you know, whose family was fractured and people died young and his brother died young. Was he some sort of quasi father figure? Because at one point, Franklin was probably the most famous, certainly the most famous American in the world until George Washington came along, but had accomplished so many things before Washington's rise to prominence. Washington, you know, Washington didn't know he was going to become rich. He, he was the, um, he was not the first son. And back then, everything in Virginia went to the first son. He was the third son and actually by the second wife. And so he thought he would have to make his own living. That's why he became a surveyor. Sure. So it turns out that his older brothers all die and he ends up inheriting the plantation, but he doesn't know that. And Washington always had, you, you use the term, I mean, he, he was reserved. He was hierarchical in his thinking. He was a Virginian. And, um, and one thing is he admires and respects his elders, his superiors. He, in his own case, his father, of course, but, um, but the Fairfaxes, Lord Fairfax, who was a neighbor. And he attaches himself to the Fairfaxes and he does surveying for the Fairfaxes. And later George Mason is similar, his neighbor, George Mason, who was his superior, older. Um, and he's deferential, he learns from all of them. And Franklin sort of fit into that category. Somebody who was had was born with absolutely nothing. He was an indentured servant, but becomes extremely wealthy due to his hard work and owns a whole chain of printing presses up and down the East Coast, integrates backward into mills, um, becomes active in so many different areas, is a, is a notable inventor for things like the Franklin stove and the lightning rod, um, is a noted scientist. So he had risen and a political leader. He basically runs Pennsylvania. Um, he serves as governor for three terms, elected unanimously twice, but he uh, actually they called it president back then, but also effectively runs the country, uh, the state and other, uh, the province, the colony at other times. And so whenever Washington comes apart, somebody, uh, Washington who is significantly younger, comes across him and he first comes across 
Franklin during the French and Indian War, when Franklin is the effective leader of Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania and colonel in charge of the Pennsylvania militia. He designs the defense, builds the forts and designs. He's out there on the frontier with the army defending um, Pennsylvania. We don't think of Franklin as a military leader, but he was actually a very smart one. And uh, defending uh, Pennsylvania uh, from the uh, French and Indians during the French and Indian Wars, allied with other Native American tribes, working very closely with them. Well, at the same time, Washington is just in his 20s, has become, because of his brother's death, the military leader of Virginia. And they were neighboring states. And that's when they first came in contact, when they were both military leaders. And so here was a person who was his senior, who was... Uh, who Washington respected greatly. And so that's when the sort of deference begun. Yes, he was deferential, but he also was a realist and he recognized ability and he viewed him as his senior. And then all they flash forward all the way to the, the Constitutional Convention when Franklin is 80 years old and Jefferson and, and Washington is coming up to the, uh, the Constitutional Convention and in Philadelphia where Franklin lives. And he is at that time the elected governor or president of Pennsylvania. When Washington comes up, the first place he goes, he, he's obviously going to be the leader of the uh, and the most storied delegate besides Franklin at the Constitutional Convention. As soon as he drops off his luggage, the first place he goes is Franklin's house to meet with him, to have lunch with him, to talk over him, talk over what's going to happen. A deferential visit. He doesn't have Franklin come to him. He goes to Franklin. And it's that sort of relationship from the beginning of their meetings in the 1750s to their final meeting in a uh, face-to-face meeting in uh, 1780. Um, uh, Seven. So, and then their final letters in 17, just before Franklin dies, speak uses words like veneration, Washington uses in the letter. So that's the sort of relationship, but that's the way Washington typically treated his superiors. I don't think he really thought by the end that Franklin was necessarily superior, but that's the way you treat older people that right. you hold enormous respect for. And then Washington also then downward one of the great traits of Washington is how he has like a father-son relationship, him being the father, with people like Hamilton and Madison and, and Lafayette. Uh, that's the way Franklin, that's the way Washington deals with people coming from a hierarchical state that has learned to respect your senior elders who are worthy of it, and also lead your junior people who 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 you mentor and it's interesting because and then want to go on to your book that won the Pulitzer Prize about the Scopes trial and I always want to say Scopes monkey trial even though that's monkey is left out of the title of your book and I want to ask you why but Washington it's interesting to see him in the position of being um, so respectful and so admiring of someone in this case Benjamin Franklin because Washington was so venerated. And one of my favorite examples is when the British fleet sailed up the Potomac in 1814 to invade the United States, which eventually led to the burning of Washington, D.C., as the British flagship sailed past Mount Vernon, 
it fired a 21 gun salute out of respect for general Washington, president Washington. That to me is typical of how Washington was, was thought of and respected at the time. That's something I just couldn't imagine uh, later countries or our country doing in, in future years as we go to war, especially since the goal is to burn and destroy the capital of the country you are invading. I could give you a parallel one to that um, with Franklin, just parallel. When the British took Philadelphia during the war, they honored Franklin's house. Franklin, of course, had signed the Declaration of Independence, was off in France negotiating against England, but they treated Franklin's house with utmost respect and did not damage the electrical equipment or all the valuable things in there. So it was the same. They admired uh, Franklin. And indeed, when Franklin was passing back to America, after the Revolutionary War, because he came home, his ship stopped in England on the way back, and King George III invited him to dinner. Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, we try to recommend books here. We don't want to get caught up with it, but if anyone's interested in Benjamin Franklin's role as a peace commissioner and delegate to Europe, read the book, besides Franklin and Washington by Dr. Larson, read the book, The Great Improvisation by Stacey Schiff. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy read, but it's a fun read. And you get through that book, you'll understand why Ben Franklin was so incredibly successful, despite John Adams's sniping and judging. Well, you, you deserve special respect for him in Indiana. Because it was Franklin and only Franklin who got the territory rest of the Appalachian Mountains. There, there hadn't been any real battles there. Uh, and all that England had to do was free the 13 colonies. But Franklin believed in the frontier. He believed what made America different and Americans different was the opportunity of the frontier. And Washington believed that too. But, Frank, but Washington wasn't in a place to effectuate it. And so Franklin laid down the absolute conditions of with the British, we will not settle this war except, and he laid down the conditions and he was so respected in England because everybody in England knew him because he'd been there before. And one of the conditions was that, that the boundary not be the Appalachians where everything has been fought for, but rather go all the way to the Mississippi River. And so Indiana is only part of the United States, thanks to Ben Franklin. Professor Larson in 1998 received the Pulitzer Prize for History for his book, Summer for the Gods, The Scopes Trial and America's Continuing Debate Over Science and Religion. As I mentioned when the podcast started, my knowledge of the Scopes Trial is deficient. So I read two or three articles about it. It took place in 1925. And it was, in my view, kind of a bit of a setup. And it regarded the, the conflict between the teaching of evolution and the teaching of a creationist theory of the world or how it began. Um, there's a famous movie called Inherit the Wind that was also a play. Uh, that is kind of stuck in popular 
culture and the notion that kind of makes the evolutionists look like backward hillbillies and the and the or excuse me the creationist backward hillbillies and the evolutionists are enlightened and so on and so forth my understanding is that you challenge that assumption in your book talk to us a little bit please about how the issue came to prominence and why the trial was affected as a way of bringing it to even greater prominence the trial came about as a result of a crusade against the teaching of human evolution in public schools that began if yeah, around 1920 and was led by William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan, um, who uh, was born in Illinois, had been the Democratic nominee for president three times. He was, he was both a political progressive and very religiously conservative. Indeed, his political progressivism grew out of his deep religious beliefs. And he was opposed to something called social Darwinism, hmm. which was not, which Charles Darwin never believed in. Um, it was a later development tied more to Herbert Spencer. Um, and so he thought that you shouldn't teach the theory of human evolution. He, he believed everything else evolved and he believed the world was very old and dinosaurs lived hundreds of millions of years ago and all that. But he believed that humans were divinely created in God's image. He didn't know whether they, that could have been through an evolutionary process. Um, he didn't know. Um, he thought the, he, he, he didn't believe that other things were created, um, but he did believe that humans in some way were specially created by God. Um, if that, and that, that you shouldn't teach students otherwise uh, because they will be, act like animals, as he says. T teach a person that they descended from monkeys, they'll act like them. And what really ticked him off was World War I. He was a, he would be a classic isolationist. He was also an anti-militarist and he opposed U.S., he was Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson and he opposed U.S. entry to World War I and he resigned as Secretary of State in protest over the war. And he read that a lot of people in Germany, but other countries as well, were justifying the war on survival of the fittest mentalities. And so he just said, if, uh, we don't, we, we, we're not, we human beings are not mere animals. We are humans and that's different. And so he crusaded for laws against teaching the theory of human evolution, not all evolution, but human evolution is as true um, in public schools. And he ended up getting quite a few allies who were fundamentalist Christians some of whom had a much narrower view uh, than he did. Um, and uh, it got picked up primarily by the Moody Bible Institute of Chicago and Biola 
uh, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, um, some evangelical and fundamentalist leaders around the country um, uh, picked up on this crusade, but it was mostly Brian. And he crusaded around America to pass laws, first to encourage high schools not to teach the theory of human evolution is true, but also to have states passed it. And he came really close in many places. Um, but the first state to do pass such a law was Tennessee in 1924. He had spoken um, to the Tennessee state legislature and an ally of his, a guy named Billy Sunday, who had been a baseball player and then became a, the biggest evangelist of his day, held a, a whole series of crusades in Tennessee while the legislature was meeting. And um, they got the Tennessee to pass such a law. Now, what happened was the opponents of such a law, um, because it had been, a, it'd been an issue for, for four or five years now, opponents of such a law led by um, the American Civil Liberties Union in New, in New York, who didn't think you should restrict public education and were very much for free speech, offered to defend any school teacher who was willing to challenge the law. And um, that wasn't seen by a school teacher, but it was seen by the um, civic leaders in a small town called Dayton, Tennessee, which is in the hill country of East Tennessee. And they thought, well, wouldn't this be a cool um, event? This will put Dayton on the map if we stage a test case for this law. And so they invited John Scopes, who wasn't a biology teacher. He was a young, he was a football coach. He was, um, and therefore had to teach a variety of other subjects, including uh, what we would now call middle school uh, uh, science, but whatever else you give to the football teacher to teach, football coach to teach. Um, and um, they, uh, he agreed. He agreed, oh, I'll stand trial. Um, and so uh, he was never put in jail or anything, but they, they, uh, they, they made a case against him for teaching it, even though he'd never taught evolution because he didn't teach high school biology. Right. But that nobody, nobody pushed that issue. And they thought they'd have a test case. So they invited um, uh, big names. They were hoping all the reporters would come down, and which they did. And they tried to get big names to defend it. And eventually they ended up getting uh, the two, uh, they get Clarence Darrow, the great defense lawyer um, and agnostic from Chicago, uh, volunteered to try uh, to, to defend Scopes. And William Jennings Bryan, who had been, you know, run for president, had been secretary of state, but before that had been a prosecuting attorney in Nebraska, um, volunteered to um, join the prosecution, which of course was led by a local prosecutor. And uh, so they ended up having what became known, billed by the press, even before the trial began, as the trial of the century. Now, there was no threat of Scopes ever going to jail. The penalty for violating the law was a $100 fine, <laughs> um, which Brian offered to pay yeah. if he got a conviction. He just wanted to uphold the principle of the statute. And um, uh, Scopes was promised his job back the next year um, for participating in this summer uh, 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 well, they called it, a, we wouldn't know the term anymore. Some of your older listeners might, Summer Chautauqua. It was sort of a summer educational event where they, the plan was they were both going to bring in experts on both sides and 
and and sort of discuss in a civilized fashion the pros and cons of such a restriction on um, academic freedom and and uh, the uh, uh, student education. Quickly, how one of the most famous quote events within the event is the Darrow cross-examination of Brian. How do you portray that in your book? And is it as iconic as it's been meant, as it's been kind of portrayed to be? Well, it certainly was front page news at the time. The entire trial was front page news. Uh, the press got a hold of it and they transformed it from what the town leaders of Dayton who had formulated it, which was sort of a discussion of the uh, whether the, such a law was wise or not wise, um, how it spoke to individual liberty, academic freedom, the right of taxpayers to control what goes on in education, those sort of questions were where they thought they'd be discussed. It was transformed into by the press uh, uh, as um, sort of small town versus big town uh, that, that Dayton became the butt of the joke, which they certainly didn't intend to be. And so, he, and then when the trial flushes out, um, Brian is not able to find virtually any expert witnesses who will defend his side of the law. And um, so then he argues against expert witnesses. And of course, the prosecution, the defense had brought down these expert witnesses from all across the country and they were excluded. And so uh, Darrow has a brilliant idea of calling Brian to the stand to defend his own law, to try to get this discussion out. And Brian, um, unfortunately, accepts it. And so you end up getting a cross-examination by the greatest trial lawyer probably in American history, Clarence Darrow, um, grilling uh, William Jennings Bryan about his law, about the, what he knows about the subject, about uh, the various issues surrounding it, about whether you should use the Bible to design what should be taught in a science classroom. And Brian never gets his chance. So to the extent the press, and not all of it was, but to the extent that part of the press was very biased against the law and for the defense, for, um, they just made a field day with uh, Brian stumbling on the witness stand. That really <laughs> didn't adversely affect his own followers because, you know, they realize who wouldn't look like a fool if they were being cross-examined by Clarence Darrow. So Brian kept his followers, but a lot of them were alienated by the level of attack. And so what you do is you took an issue that was not a particularly big issue before Brian picked it up. There were other issues that split evangelicals from popular American culture, but this became, um, they elevated the uh, uh, human origins to sort of the front rank um, of, of controversy. And it's talking about that, trying an even-handed way, trying to go back and present the event just how it happened, as opposed to trying to make it a story for one side or for the other, was why I ended up getting people on both sides of the aisle today um, endorsing the book and 
all of them, whether you're uh, evangelical. I, I remember after the book came out, it was issued as a premium book. If you gave enough donations, you would get a copy both from Bryan College, which is the fundamentalist school in Dayton, Tennessee, built to honor Bryan after the trial, and by the ACLU on the other side. And I figured that's enough <laughs> balance. <laughs> We have reached the point of the podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. It's a particularly tough five questions, at least two or three of them for historians who come on, but we're on with Professor Ed Larson. And Professor Larson, if you're ready, I'm ready. Question number one, what was your first job? Oh, my first, my first real job was in when I was in high school, um, I'd work in the summers. You could work when you were 16 back then uh, in an assembly line, uh, building washing machines for uh, Westinghouse in Mansfield, Ohio. That'd be a summer job. That'd be my first job. What was your first concert? Oh, my first concert. I mean, you grew Ooh. up in some, you grew up in some amazing music years, sir. I did. I think I think it might have been Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, might have been. I can't remember one before that. So I'll stick with Simon and Garfunkel. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Oh, which book? Which book ends, ends up? Uh, it depends on who they are. If they like history, if they like, um, you know, religion, I never would steer anybody away from the Bible. Of course, um, if they like literature, uh, you know, I suppose if they like plays, King Lear is my probably my favorite play. I love Shakespeare. Um, so it's really hard to narrow down to a single book. So let me just say uh, the first book, uh, you know, would, uh, I love the Walden, Walden by Thoreau. Um, but boy, I love mysteries. So, I mean, I could go on forever on that. <laughs> it's not a fair question for you. So we'll just say King Lear because no one has said King Lear. This is our 80th or so podcast. That would be a first number. This is terrible to ask you this question. So forgive me, but please do what you can with it. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? If you want to say the scopes trial, then... No, no, I suppose um, in American history, and I'll limit him that, Washington's resignation um, after the Revolutionary War in Annapolis uh, might be, because I think that set the course more than anything for civilian rule in America. Terrific. And last question, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, talk about anything you want never to be repeated or discovered, whom would you choose? Anybody living today makes it harder to, um, um, I've got to remember who's still alive. Um, that always fools me. I, I, I remember last week I heard Olivia de Havilland died and I said, you mean she was still alive? Uh, the, um, but uh, who would I do of everybody living today? living today um boy i i want to be fair on this and um um living today 
if it was any American, I would have said Ben Franklin easily. But living today, um, hmm, hmm, there must be some, I suppose, I don't know, this is sort of off the wall, but maybe Bill Gates. Assuming he would pick up the check, of course, is he... <laughs> That's a terrific idea. Uh, you've actually hung out with, if that's the right term, President George W. Bush. He's been a frequent answer to this question, as has uh, President Barack Obama. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Professor Ed Larson, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, certainly a best-selling author, and incredibly generous with his time and knowledge today. Uh, Dr. Lawson, Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you. It's a treat for me as someone who's read your books, and I'm going to do all I can to make sure that more people read your books. Go Hoosiers. <laughs> Spoken like a true Midwesterner. Thank you, Professor Larson, very, very much. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.